All right, everybody, welcome to our PDRA Early Investigator webinar, Imposter No More, Practical Strategies to Step into Full Authenticity and Confidence. So just to introduce you, the Early Investigator Committee Chair is Dr. Elena Howry-Luck. She's a pediatric dermatologist and assistant professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School, and she is our fearless leader. And uh, she and the rest of the committee help to produce these webinars to help support all of our early investigators. Dr. Howerluck, I will let you introduce our special speaker. Thanks so much, Jen, and thank you, Dr. Gazelle, for joining us. Um, Dr. Gail Gazelle, she's a former hospice physician and a part-time Harvard Medical School assistant professor and also a master certified coach for, for physicians. Um, she's also a certified mindfulness uh, meditation teacher. I'm not going to read through this entire bio that's lovely and it's up there, but I will say personally, I'm delighted for Gail to join us. Um, as part of Mass General's wellness efforts, our dermatology program connected interested faculty with coaches. I was so lucky to meet Gail during this program back in 2019, before the pandemic. I was starting my fifth year as an attending and I was trying to do absolutely everything. Um, I was so lucky to be paired with Gail as a coach. She has also coached several of my close colleagues and at times we reflect to each other on accountability and lessons learned from Gail. I'm so grateful to her for the coaching and the tools that I've kept in my pocket, which have carried me through challenging conversations, new opportunities and critical decisions. Gail will speak tonight on one of her many areas of expertise, imposter syndrome. Thank you so much, Gail. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, let me just put my slides up. Okay, so we've got a lot to cover today. So I want you to kind of hang on to your hats, so to speak. Um, what we're talking about today is how to manage the imposter phenomenon so that it doesn't stop you from being your full authentic self and being your confident self and bringing all of your skills and strengths to the work that you do, to the communities that you live in, and not to mention to your families as well. And we're going to have a fairly active session. I'll be presenting a bit of a didactic overview. Then we will go into breakout rooms where you will have a chance to try one of the three strategies that I'll be working with you today to help you utilize and get some practice with in terms of tools to have in your tool belt to manage this very pesky phenomenon that many of us are troubled by. So certainly by the end of our time together, you'll understand some of the factors that contribute to the imposter phenomenon. You'll understand a little bit about why applied mindfulness is really important in managing this condition. And very importantly, you'll have some strategies that you can utilize to help you as you go forward. Well, let's jump in. For any of you that need a definition of what the imposter phenomenon is, let's face it, it's very prevalent. And I think that's probably why most of you are here. It's this idea that what we know is tiny, you know, kind of as big as the tip of my pinky, and that what our peers know is massive, as big as the city of Boston, so to speak, and that it's only a matter of time until this will be found out. And what will happen then? Well, we will be the laughing stock of our institution. So it's a high stakes phenomenon that leaves us really fearful and can actually leave us acting very small in our roles. And again, it's a marked inability to internalize the many accomplishments that I know each and every one of you has and this persistent fear 
of being exposed as a fraud. We believe that our accomplishments and our promotions and all of our uh, things that we're able to do professionally and personally are because of luck or chance or being in the right place at the right time or something that doesn't have to do with us and what is intrinsic to us. And again, there's this fear that we will be exposed. Coupled with that is a tremendous fear of failure and a lot of perfectionism. And we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail. The interesting thing is just how many high achievers suffer with the imposter phenomenon. That can be confusing. We can think to ourselves, well, all of us are so accomplished. Why is this? And yet, it's actually extremely common in high achievers, and in particular, in high achieving women. Make no mistake about it, it is a chronic condition, and it's a chronic waxing and waning condition. You may have heard the name Pauline Clance. She is a clinical psychologist, and she and her colleague, another clinical psychologist, Suzanne Imes, are credited with giving us this term imposter phenomenon. They did a study that came out in 1978, a long time ago, looking at 150 very successful women professionals in a wide variety of professions, physicians, attorneys, dentists, CEOs, CMOs, et cetera. And that's what gave us the definition of what imposter phenomenon is, and also the idea that it affects many highly accomplished women who will come up with all kinds of reasons of why they are successful other than laying claim to their own strengths. And here's just a few quotes that I have heard um, from the over 500 physicians and physician leaders that I've had the pleasure of coaching over the last decade. They all knew, they all know what they're doing, but I don't. What's wrong with me? It's only a matter of time until everybody sees what a fake I am. Ah, it was just luck that I got promoted, that I got that grant, that I got that position. Oh, few, fooled everybody again, but next time everybody will see. I've never led a study before. What if everybody sees how inexperienced I am? I'm supposed to be a leader, but do I even know how to lead? For those of you who are newly out of training, I've heard things like, well, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm so young at this. I'm so new. Everybody can see that I don't really know what I'm doing. I've heard I'm a fake dermatologist. I've heard that from a number of dermatologists over the years and certainly in other fields and specialties as well. And then there's the very persnickety, you know, I don't even belong here. I don't even know why they let me in. So you can hear the kind of knife in the heart quality of these sentiments that colleagues of yours across North America have shared. So the extent of this, I don't think can really be overestimated. Now, a lot of famous people feel like they're an imposter. If you um, go on Google and you just click famous people who've uh, suffered from the imposter syndrome or phenomenon, it's really shocking. So here's a few quotes. Maya Angelou, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and now they're going to find out the truth. Tom Hanks, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me? Michelle Obama, I work to overcome that question that I always ask myself, am I enough? Am I good enough to have all of this? 
And last but not least, this is attributed to Albert Einstein, the exaggerated esteem in which my life work is held makes me very ill at ease. I feel compelled to think of myself as a voluntary swindler, involuntary swindler. So you begin to get this sense that many of us are walking around accusing ourselves of being an imposter. And it's just interesting that every time we think that and we think that it's just us, I think what you'll see by the end of our time together is that that is really an underestimation. It is very far from just us. At places like Harvard Medical School, where I uh, was fortunate enough to land my uh, academic career, there's kind of the Harvard Olympics, the sense of everybody else is so much accomplished. What am I doing here? I did a visiting palliative care and pain fellowship a number of years ago in the Midwest. And there people said, well, we're not at Harvard. We're not at Yale. We're not at Princeton. You know, we're total imposters. So it can attack us really no matter where we are and how successful we are in our careers. Look at this. Even Shakespeare had an unreasonable inner critic. Oh, my goodness. It's absolute crap. And your fear of being publicly exposed as a fraud is a stress-related disorder called imposter syndrome. It's common amongst people in high-profile authority positions and, of course, in actual phonies like you. So we have to add a little bit of humor to this otherwise very intense and, and I think really painful topic that many of us struggle with. Now, what happens when we walk around feeling like we're not the real deal? I think the impact of it is really pervasive and widespread. And the title of our talk, really stepping into your authenticity and your confidence, because the imposter phenomenon erodes both of those things. It leaves us really afraid to take risks, afraid to speak up afraid to share what we might know about a topic because, uh-oh, what if people really see that we don't really know that much and that we're not as good as the others? So it makes us afraid to put forth new ideas. It keeps us living very small, right? Not necessarily trying out for that you know, advanced position, that next grant, that next research project. Whatever it is, it keeps us really afraid to move out of a small confining space. It makes it very difficult for us to be authentic, for us to feel good about ourselves. And I think that many of you are probably aware that this is not just in the professional sphere, right? This carries over into our personal lives. I've coached so many women in particular who talk about feeling like they're a fake mother that other mothers know what they're doing. Other mothers know how to discipline their kids. Other mothers know how to sort of find that balance of good limit setting and also you know, making sure that the kids are getting done what they need to get done. So it leaves us exhausted, depleted, really with a lack of motivation in many ways and less energy to do all of the good that I know each of you bring to the world around you. So. The cost of the imposter phenomenon is mighty. Now, the question often comes up, imposter phenomenon is more common in women. And why is that? So, you know, if you ask around, I know there are largely women on this call. If you ask around, you'll probably notice this as well, that your female colleagues and friends 
identify more with this than the male colleagues, which, you know, it's not to overgeneralize. Obviously, some male physicians and uh, men in other capacities walk around feeling like an imposter, but it's much more common in women. And so let's just think for a minute, well, why is this? So in our very gender stratified society, let's face it, we're much more judged by our appearance than our male partners and our male, our, our male counterparts, right? From a young age, it's about how we look and are we smiling enough? And uh, you know, are we as pretty as the other girls? And what that teaches us is that some of our value is in this external thing, this body and how the body looks, much of which is genetic. And so that can rob us of an internal compass, an internal ability to see all of our strengths and successes and accomplishments and talents. From a young age, we're taught to act small, you know, just sit there and look pretty. Don't take up a lot of space. Don't raise, a, don't raise a fuss. You know, if you're if you're on public transportation or even in meetings, you see men, you know, kind of taking up a lot of space. And what are we doing? We're kind of sitting there looking and feeling small. Sadly, many times we're considered too emotional, too weak. And that can also contribute to the sense of, well, is our authentic self good enough? And although this is changing. I think in many venues and certainly in many uh, healthcare institutions, we don't have the same number of role models that our male counterparts have, certainly in highly placed positions. Further, we can question, well, why does this occur in physicians? And I think it's very hard for the general public to appreciate just how widespread this phenomenon is amongst us. Well, again, there's an emphasis on perfection. It's subtle, but I think most of us can recall times in our training in medical school residency fellowship where we were compared to others and we were almost told, well, that one is perfect, but you know, you get one thing wrong and you may be considered a failure. And that of course leaves us judging ourselves harshly and wondering, do we really measure up? Of course, all the ratings and rankings and comparisons that start much earlier than our medical training, but instill in us this idea that we're always going to be compared to someone else, and we learn in many ways to focus on where we are coming up short. And then I think it's fair to say that so much of medical training and education is deficit-focused rather than strengths. We might be on rounds, we might be you know, called upon to give the differential diagnosis of whatever condition you know, we're, we're seeing. And what the attending or the chief resident is going to point out is, oh, you missed one thing or you missed more than that, not like good job. So when you reflect on your own training, I suspect that will resonate for you. And just to take that point a little bit further, that um, there's a lot that we learn in our training as part and parcel of the hidden curriculum. In other words, not formally what we're learning, but what we're seeing, what we're seeing attendings do, what we're seeing role modeled, and kind of the, um, the secret handshake in a sense of becoming acculturated as a physician. So as I said, the striving for perfection, we learn to defer self-care, to deny our own physiologic needs, never call in sick, that's a sign of weakness. 
we learn to be very self-critical and to be ashamed when we don't know the answer, because after all, we're the captain of the team. We are supposed to be the all-knowing paragon and we're always supposed to have an answer. We learn to hide our struggles. Our struggles and weaknesses can be stigmatized. And certainly we learn that it's a problem if we show vulnerability and ask for help. Now I'm making some broad sweeping generalizations here, so I hope you'll forgive me. But at the same time, I suspect that some of this resonates for you when you think about your experience as a trainee. And again, we have to add some humor to this. So look at this, all these people really seem to have it together and I still have no idea what's going on. And welcome to Scared Straight. Here we tell potential doctors about the long hours, student debt, high malpractice premiums, paperwork, and working with insurance companies to see if they still want to continue a life of medicine. So again, we have to lighten this where we can. We don't have a lot of studies about the imposter phenomenon in physicians. And this is actually a scoping review. It's actually a fairly imperfect review. I'm gonna say that right up front. It came out in 2019 and looked at uh, the number of studies that we have where they use what's called the, um, the Clance imposter phenomenon scale. That's what's commonly used. But again, I don't think we really know just how prevalent this is because I'm being very honest here that when we look at the data, the few studies that we have, there are a lot of um, challenges in those studies, not to mention that people don't always answer survey questions correctly. So I wanted to just draw attention to the fact that we do have some literature, but I also want to give a, a fairly accurate view that it's really not as revealing as we might hope it could be. Now, there's something that I call uh, the destructive triad. The destructive triad, and what do I mean by that? That's the imposter phenomenon, perfectionism, and procrastination. And the three of these really run together. And for any of you who suffer from one, two, or all three of the elements of this destructive triad, I think you can understand why I give it that label. What is it that happens with perfectionism? Well, by definition, it's an unattainable standard, right? And yet we hold out for it. We berate ourselves when we don't achieve it. We procrastinate to avoid facing that level of self-criticism. At the same time, we believe that berating ourselves will improve our performance. We ruminate and experience anxiety. We experience a lack of confidence and we have difficulty appreciating our success. And it really begs the question, is there something between success and failure? Is there perhaps a standard of good enough, a standard of doing your best, of showing up authentically and bringing all the skills and talents that you have, even if you're not perfect? And many of you may be familiar with the work of Brené Brown. She's a shame research, researcher in Texas. She had a, a TED talk a number of years ago that went viral. And she helps us understand that perfectionism is self-destructive simply because there's no such thing as being perfect. It's an unattainable goal. 
And it's more about perception. We want to be perceived as perfect. And she emphasizes, again, this is unattainable. There's no way to control the perception of others, regardless of how much time and energy we spend trying. So just a few other things before we move into some practical exercises. This is what I have coined the cycle of perceived inadequacy. So let me walk through this cycle. We tend to be hyper-focused on what it is that we didn't do well, right? That's part of the imposter phenomenon. I didn't give a good presentation. I didn't sound smart. You know, I wasn't really at the top of my game. We gather data to support that, fairly subjective data at that. Maybe we're giving a, a presentation at Grand Rounds or a journal club or whatever it is. And we see a couple of people looking down at their devices and we think, oh yeah, they're not interested in me. I'm such a phony, they can see it. But really, they probably just got an urgent text or you know, they just were following up on something on their phone. We compare ourselves to others, but what are we hyper-focused on there? Well, we're hyper-focused on what we perceive that they're doing well. So we create this delta, this gap between where we perceive we are and where we perceive they are. But we don't stop there. No, we keep going round and round and round in this cycle kind of feeding ourselves information to support this belief. And that's all it is, is a belief. This belief that we are an imposter. And you may be familiar with the concept of cognitive distortions. It comes to us from the field of cognitive behavioral therapy. These are filters that we all have, lenses through which we look at ourselves and the world around us. And often these lenses are full of distortions magnification and minimization. You can see that in the cycle of perceived inadequacy. We believe we're a mind reader. I can tell that you think that I'm an imposter. And really, how do we know what anybody else is thinking? We filter out positive comments. We focus on what might be called all or nothing thinking, all or nothing thinking. I'm either the real deal or I'm a, a complete fraud. And then we say things to ourselves that we would never say to our worst enemy. And we certainly wouldn't say it to somebody that we care about. Again, we gotta laugh. Here lies Dr. Jones, lifetime RVU below the median. Now, we have a worksheet that was sent out to you, but I believe that uh, Jen has put the link to it in the chat. So I wanna encourage you, each of you to pull out that worksheet if you haven't downloaded it already, please just uh, click on that link in the chat so you have it available to you. And if you can't download it, if you don't have it available, just pull up a scrap piece of paper. We can work with that. And what I want you to write down is what are your top imposter beliefs? You don't have to share that with anyone else, but it's helpful to just get to know them in a sense to bring them out into the light of day. So just jot down a few of your common imposter beliefs. I'm not as smart as, I'm not as good as, you know, I'm a complete phony in my leadership role, whatever it is. And as you're thinking about these imposter beliefs, I want you to just try to bring to light what you feel when you experience these beliefs, what are you aware of? in your body, are there any, and we might call them physical sequela, 
of these beliefs? Do you feel calm and relaxed and at ease or do you feel tight? Are your shoulders up? Maybe your brow is furrowed. Just take note of that for a moment. And also take a moment to jot down what is it that tends to trigger these imposter beliefs? That cycle of perceived inadequacy. Is it giving a presentation? Is it talking to uh, other peers in your department? Is it a research meeting? Is it applying for a promotion, academic or otherwise? We need to get to know what our imposter beliefs are and kind of how costly they are for us. And now we're gonna switch the frame and I'm gonna take you on a little bit of an imaginary journey, a brief journey, less than five minutes. And so put the worksheet down, allow your eyes to close if you're not driving. And I want you to just imagine what your life and career would be like if you didn't have these imposter beliefs. Might be a stretch to try to imagine that, but I think this is important. So just imagine you leave this webinar today, you have some great skills and strategies to help you. What would be different? You know what your week holds, so imagine what would tomorrow be like without any of these sort of niggling little beliefs about being an imposter? Imagine your clinical load, the patients you would see, what would be different there? Perhaps there are meetings that you'll be leading or participating in. What would be different in those situations? Imagine the people that you'll interact with. Perhaps you'll be in some teaching capacities. What would be different there if you didn't carry this weight of feeling like an imposter? And then imagine what would be different when you get home at the end of the day, when you're with your loved ones. It's possible that something would be different there as well. I want you to have a little bit of a dose of this better existence without this constant weight, this constant sense of self-doubt. So you'll see on page one of the worksheet down at the bottom, just jot some things down, anything that you noticed that would be different. Now, I'm going to introduce you to my dog, Miss Sydney. You can see she's caught the stick. If this uh, wasn't a still, you would see that her tail is just wagging like crazy. And for those of you who have dogs or cats or canaries or guinea pigs, you know that they're not plagued by the type of things that we humans are, right? The human brain is just so incredible, amazing, so much capacity for discovery and achievement and, and you know, beyond words. And yet there are some downsides to the human brain. And one of those is the negativity bias where we tend to focus more on what's not going well as opposed to what is. So you'll see a few questions on the second page of your worksheet. I'm gonna go through them fairly quickly, but I want you to just answer to the best of your ability. Do you tend to notice more your strengths or your weaknesses? Do you tend to focus on what you've accomplished or what you haven't? Do you pay more attention to what's going well or what isn't? And you can also think to yourself, well, what's my typical ratio of self-promoting or self-affirming messages to self-defeating messages? Do I have 10 affirming messages for one defeating message or critical message? Is it a one-to-one -one ratio or is it a one-to-10 ratio? Just take a moment to jot that down. 
So right now, bring to mind a moment where you felt you were acting at your best. Perhaps it was with a trainee, giving a presentation, working on a research project, time with a coworker, a patient, any moment in time, even in the remote past when you felt like you were at your best, of course, your mind will probably go to just the opposite. But I wanna encourage you to identify a moment in time that you were at or close to your best. Talk through, well, what strengths did you evidence? And then in the last part of the exercise, think about how you could utilize those same strengths. Think about one action you could take to help you overcome a professional challenge that you're facing. Do your best to identify the strengths that you evidenced, and then think about how you could use one of those strengths to overcome a challenge. That's the first strategy to manage the imposter phenomenon, really focusing on your strengths. If you're somebody who goes uh, to bed at night and does an inventory of uh, what you didn't do well, what you perceived your, uh, your flaws were, this is an opportunity to reflect on your strengths and your accomplishments. Now, the second strategy that I want to talk about, and I'm going to have to go through these fairly rapidly, is um, to utilize what I think about as applied mindfulness. With mindfulness, we're getting to know the workings of our mind. Mindfulness is the awareness that comes when we pay attention on purpose to what's happening in the present moment, and we do so with more compassion and less judgment than most of us typically apply to ourselves and the world around us. And when we apply mindfulness, we lead the mind back from theories and attitudes and abstractions, and we get to know our own patterns of thought. And as we do, we can question the mental stories that the human mind is so good at producing. And one of those mental stories is this idea that we are an imposter that's actually all it is, is a thought process, a mental story that occurs in this closed space where we have a lot of activity. And once we begin to really understand that it's only a thought process, that also gives us more agility to work with and to counter our own mind's production of this belief, which is often an inaccurate one. And let's just think about this. To understand what mindfulness is, we can juxtapose it with mindlessness, where we're on a kind of autopilot mentally. We go through the day. The day is a bit of a blur. What patients did I see? Did I eat lunch? You know, well, who did I talk to? That's a lack of awareness of what's actually happening, the moments of our lives. We can find our mind flitting around from the past to the future, back and forth. We can be very reactive rather than having a nice professional staid stance. And all of this leaves us feeling stuck and rigid, judgmental, and contributes to stress, anxiety, and burnout. After all, when we're mindful, we're in our body. The body is always here in the present. When we're mindless, the body is present, but the mind is elsewhere. And without mindfulness, we can almost be like a marionette. We can feel like we're jerked around by the circumstances of our days where something happens and we react just like that. And with mindfulness, you know, we're going through our lives in the same way, the same stimulus. But when we're aware of what's going on and when we're aware of what our internal response is, we can pause. And in that pause, we can realize that we have a choice about how we respond. 
And when we respond from that place of intentionality, that's when we have less regrets about what we've said and done. After all, the human mind is an incredibly busy place. It's estimated that our minds produce 10 to 20,000 thoughts a day. I think for most physicians, it's probably closer to 20 to 50,000. Our minds are busy places. And of course, many of our thoughts are highly productive and helpful, but many of them are unhelpful. And I wanna just go to this observation about the nature of thought. What is thought? Thought is your friend. Thought is also your enemy. No one can harm you as much as unwise thought, and no one can help you more than wise thought. Through the practice of meditation, we can build our muscle of mindfulness. We can question our thoughts. We can ask ourselves, is that thought I'm having helpful? For example, when we're accusing ourselves of being an imposter, is that helping me? Is that helping me actually shine in this situation? Is this helping me reach my professional goals? Or is it actually getting in my way? And the more we do that, the more we question our, the veracity of our own thoughts, we can begin to separate from them. We can begin to see that many of our thoughts are fake news and they're really quite destructive and troubling. We can gain more mastery over our minds rather than being captive to them. So that's the second strategy is to use mindfulness, whether you meditate or not, to simply question your thoughts. And the third and last strategy that I wanna talk about is practicing compassion toward yourself. Most of us learn in our medical training and beyond to be very harsh with ourselves. Again, to say things to ourselves we would never think about saying to somebody else. And we who are in healthcare, who are in the business of taking care of people all day long, if we bring compassion to them, but not to ourselves, we're kind of excluding ourselves from the circle of humanity who we consider really worthy of kindness and care and compassion. Luckily, self-compassion is getting a lot of research, a lot of attention. You may have heard the name Kristen Neff. She's really the pioneer in self-compassion research. And when we're compassionate with ourselves, it's almost as if we're putting our hand on our heart. So right now, as you imagine some of your own imposter beliefs, some of the things that you accuse yourself of regularly, you could put your hand over your heart the universal gesture of self-kindness. And you can say to yourself, may I be kind to myself? May I forgive my imperfections? Because I, like everyone, has them. May I bring the same compassion to myself that I bring to so many others. This is what's called a self-compassion break. Quite a few studies that Kristen Neff and others have done about the benefits of self-compassion, finding that it decreases depression, anxiety, improves our image of our own bodies, enhances a sense of self-worth, promotes motivation, even though most of us in medicine are taught that the only way to motivate ourselves is to beat ourselves up. It's interesting to see the research that counters this and fostering resilience. There are only a couple of studies now of self-compassion in physicians. So it's an area that we're beginning to learn more and more about. Now, we're coming to the end. We've covered three important strategies as well as just helping you understand a little bit more about why the imposter phenomenon occurs and who it afflicts. We looked at applying your strengths in a very intentional way, using them to bridge difficulties like imposter beliefs. 
We talked briefly about mindfulness, getting to know which of your thoughts are helpful and which are not. And third, applying the same compassion to yourself that you bring to so many others. I have a free guide on my site that's called Imposter No More. You can download that at gailgazelle.com. And then you can see the, the full URL here, and we can put that in the chat as well. And then I also have a free mini mindfulness course specifically for physicians, where every day for two weeks, you get an audio where I teach about a uh, mindfulness topic, and then I lead you in a guided meditation. And each day is under 10 minutes. And if you don't catch the URLs here, you can go to gailgazelle.com and go to the free resource section. If I can be helpful to you in any way, my email is info at gailgazelle.com. I also run a fairly popular um, private Facebook group for physicians. It's called Mindful MD. I just started it about eight months ago, and I think we have over 1,500 individuals. So if you're on Facebook and you'd like to connect there, please do so. So this has been a quick tour of uh, the imposter phenomenon. I apologize if I tried to cover too much information, um, but I really hope this can be helpful to you. It's going to take work, and yet these tools can really help you manage this otherwise very troubling phenomenon. So we can open it up to questions here, Jen. Thank you so much, Gail. This has been really insightful, and I know everybody is really appreciative. So I just want to start, we had a question come in earlier in your talk um, when you were talking about how men and women feel imposter syndrome differently um, and more women feel it. And the question is, do you feel that it is actually less common in men or is it just not admitted to or reported as often as it is in women? Isn't that an interesting question? I'm not sure I really know the answer. Sure, I think many men um, do feel like an imposter, but again, Let's face it, you know, our, our society, our medical system, many of the professional spheres that we operate in, there's a lot of differences um, between how we're viewed as men and women. We're acculturated. For those of you who have kids, you can see it from an early age. So I think that at the end of the day, we might still find that more women experience this than men. But do we know that for sure? You know, as this uh, person states, we don't know it for sure. Um, and then do you think the pandemic has helped people focus on strengths or has it exacerbated imposter syndrome? This is also a question I share as well. Do you, how has the pandemic affected this phenomenon? Well, I can tell you in my non-random sample of um, female physicians that I coach, the level of feeling like an imposter as a parent during the pandemic is not low. Just for example, you know, questions about sending your child to school. I'm, I'm thinking of somebody that I coached in a, you know, somewhere across our fair land just this week. And actually her husband doesn't want to get vaccinated, doesn't want the kids to be vaccinated. The kids are quite young. So you can imagine the tension in the family around that. And the, um, the physician, you know, said to me, my gosh, you know, like, what are people going to think? My kids aren't vaccinated. What am I, some kind of phony doctor parent? You know, so I think our buttons can be pushed and, and there's probably a lot of examples of pandemic stress and difficulty that kind of get in there. You know, I'm a physician after all, I should know how to handle this, but for most of the pandemic, we didn't have answers. In the early part of the pandemic, we didn't have a vaccine. So 
what does it mean when we as physicians don't have an answer? So I think, I think it may be more prevalent. I, I'm not aware of any studies that have actually, you know, scientifically looked at it. So what's the, the best way to protect the next generation from imposter syndrome? Mm. Well, the three strategies that we talked about are ones that I want to encourage you to share with trainees and to share with your kids, if that's relevant, to help your trainees, for example, really focus on their strengths, not as an idle exercise, not as kind of a Pollyanna, oh, you're so wonderful. But, you know, if you think about the field of appreciative inquiry, a leadership area uh, that's well established, it's really about how can we use our strengths to bridge areas where we're not quite as strong. Now, that's not something they focused on in my medical training. I don't know about all of you. Um, you know, it was really like, you didn't do this, and why didn't you know that, et cetera. And yet, we can help trainees harness their strengths to help them improve and to help them bridge areas of difficulty. We can encourage people to be more compassionate to themselves. Think of all the times you've worked with a trainee and they're thinking, oh, why didn't I know that? Or, oh, the attending's gonna think I'm so this, right? You know, that's just like the bread and butter or the background fabric of being a trainee. So you can encourage that trainee, now wait a minute, how can you just give yourself a pass? Is there some imperfection that you can forgive yourself for? We can explain to the trainee, you know, gosh, I'm not so perfect. You know, and I've really learned to um, forgive myself and apply the same compassion. So we can be role models for each of the strategies and certainly a more mindful approach. You don't have to meditate for hours a day to become more mindful, to question your own thoughts, just to ask yourself, how is this thought serving me? And I think you'll find it that a lot of your thoughts are actually not really helping you. Once you identify that, you develop more agency to work with your own mind. I think yeah. for us as physicians in particular, we're so focused on, our, on the cognitive. Mm -hmm. We're not really taught to question our own cognition. And yet our minds are tricky places. You know, the, the author Anne Lamott, you know, she has this famous quote, my mind is a dangerous place. I try to never go there alone. <laughs> you know, our minds are, are complicated. Yeah, absolutely. The more we get to know our own thoughts, the more agency we have with them. So I really want to thank everybody for making this time to be here. I wish we'd had more time to cover this and we kind of went quickly, but I hope having the worksheet can help remind you of some of your strengths and help remind you to be more compassionate to yourself and to really apply these skills. It takes practice. It really does. You know, our minds are conditioned to operate and to think that we're an imposter and yet we can shift that with enough practice and repetition. It's a great big thank you. This was awesome. Thank you, Gail. Thank you so much to Dr. Gazelle for being with us this evening. What a fantastic talk. You can find a wealth of information and resources on her website at gailgazelle.com. That's G-A-I-L-G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. We hope you'll think of this talk when you start to experience any imposter syndrome in yourself. And if your trainees experience any as well, lots of incredible tips. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.